Podcastle, episode 310, for May 8th, 2014, When the Lady Speaks, by Damien Angelica Walters, rated PG. Hello and welcome back to Podcastle. I'm Dave Thompson, your host and co-editor. There's a little bit of magic in all of us, I've heard. Even if we're blind to it or don't understand how to access it, that doesn't mean that someone else can't. Well, today we have a story for you about fortune-telling, family duty, stealing magic, love, and sacrifice. It's told in a pretty unique way through the reading of tarot cards our protagonist, the fortune teller, is reading. So, how about you shuffle and I turn them over? Deal? This week's story is When the Lady Speaks, by Damien Angelica Walters, originally published in the anthology What Fates Impose, edited by Nyad Monroe. If that anthology title sounds familiar to you, well, it's probably because we recently ran another story from it. Kefi R.M. Curley's Gazing into the Carnalba Wax Eyes of the Future, or better known as The Peeps Story. Additionally, our friends at Escape Pod just ran a story by the one and only Ferret Steinmetz called Black Swan Oracle. So, yeah, apparently we at Escape Artists really dig a lot about this anthology. Damien Angelica Walters' short fiction has appeared, or is forthcoming, in various magazines and anthologies, including The Year's Best Weird Fiction, Volume 1, Lightspeed, Strange Horizons, Apex, Glitter and Mayhem, Nightmare, and many others. She has a collection of her short fiction coming out later this year from Apex Publications called Sing Me Your Scars and Other Stories, as well as the novel Ink, out now. This is her first appearance here at Podcastle, but you can also hear her stories over at Pseudopod. LaShawn Wanick is an associate editor here at Podcastle. She reads submissions for us and occasionally does story introductions and now narrations. LaShawn also happens to have a story in this anthology, What Fates Impose, and she's also been published at Daily Science Fiction, Idiomancer, Kaleidotrope, and some other pretty rad places especially check out her story 21 steps to enlightenment minus one at strange horizons you can visit her at the cafe in the woods we'll link to it in our show notes so let me shake up the old podcastle magic eight ball it says oh enjoy the story when the lady speaks by damien angelica walters the first thing you need to know is this. She lies. They're pretty lies, tasting of raspberries and kaleidoscopes and promise. And she smiles when she spins her tails, as if that makes it more acceptable. Others will tell you you're a fool for paying, for listening, for daring to believe a fortune teller. But you know in your heart of hearts that they're the fools, because lies are often just another variation of the truth. The truth is... Her lies have nothing to do with you. The star, hope, confidence. And this card symbolizes a choice you have to make. Marina pauses to look across the table. The woman's eyes hold tiny specks of storm. 
a difficult choice, Marina adds. The woman nods slowly. Does it tell you what I should do? Marina turns over the next card. The lovers. The woman's breath hitches. I think you already know the answer, Marina says carefully, ignoring the itch in the palm of her hand. Tears spill over the woman's lashes and down her cheeks, but her eyes remain focused and hard, and she gives a small nod. Yes, it was the right thing to say. Once again, Marina's intuition serves her well. Money exchanges hands. From the feel of the folded bills, it's more than the agreed-upon amount. This doesn't surprise her. She knows the woman will be back as well, just as she knows the card layout is all chance and no mystery. Everything she says is ambiguous, but her clients never notice. They arrange what the cards reveal to fit in the spaces of their lives. They always do. Marina locks the door, twists the blinds shut, and heads back through the beaded curtain, parting it with both hands so the strands don't get tangled in her wig. Leaving the lights dimmed, she sinks down into her chair, as if her entire body holds the weight of what is yet unknown and unspoken. The walls of what she calls the parlor are a dusky red, cluttered with mirrors and tiny shelves with dragons and gargoyles and crystals. The table is a simple thing, but covered with several heavy tablecloths, all with tassels hanging from the corners. She found the chairs at a thrift store, the dark wood and velvet cushions from another time. A Turkish rug, another thrift store find, covers the floor completely. Every bit of fabric holds a trace of the incense she burns every morning before her clients arrive. A potent blend of frankincense and musk, but not too much. She isn't a church, and absolution doesn't come in a deck of cards or a mouthful of evocative words. She peels the fingerless gloves from her hands, drops them on the table with a weary sigh. In the center of her left palm, the tip of a red thread pokes from the skin like a tiny drop of dried blood. When she touches the thread, she smells the tang of oranges, tastes honey on her tongue, both small gifts from the magic. She takes a quick breath before she pulls the thread free. There's a sharp bite of pain, like the last little sting of a scab tugged from a wound. Not a gift, but a price to be paid. And the itch in her palm vanishes. The dread goes into a small glass bottle with the others. Six clients, five dreads, five stories. Five true answers to questions asked from the heart. Not everyone does, and the dreads only answer those who do. How they know the difference between a true wish and one merely formed with lips and tongue, Marina doesn't understand, but she doesn't need to. Not everything in life comes with an explanation. She is only the vessel, the pathway, as her mother and grandmother before her. As she caps the bottle, her chest tightens and her fingers tremble. The dreads, while born of her body, don't truly belong to her. In days past, 
she discreetly plucked the thread free and worked the answers into her readings, hiding the truth inside an expected illusion. Perhaps she's the one who needs absolution. But she isn't stealing anything. She's merely borrowing. If the dreads would answer her own questions, she wouldn't need to. But the magic doesn't work that way. And her clients don't truly need the answers. They'll experience them on their own. Knowing or not knowing won't make a bit of difference. She swallows the guilt and carries the bottle upstairs to her small apartment. The rooms are a far cry from the myriad of colors in the parlor, all beige and brown, sparse and scented only with a hint of last night's dinner left too long in the oven. Her hands are slow, but sure, as she removes the wig of long black curls, wipes away the smudges of coal around her eyes, exchanges the long skirt, the shawl, and the copious amounts of gaudy jewelry for a pair of loose, comfortable pants and a long sleeve t-shirt. Without the bulk of her disguise, she appears inconsequential, no longer Marina of the cards, but Marianne of the late middle age, complete with close-cropped graying hair, loose skin about the jawline and neck, a haiku of lines on her forehead, and a waist thickening a bit more each year. Someone a client could pass on the street without noticing, and yes, it happened several times. She leaves the apartment via the back door, the only door she uses when not in disguise, the glass bottle tucked into her pocket. As always, the bus smells of urine and stale sweat. Marianne sits at the front and keeps her eyes turned to the window, to the streets passing by. From time to time, she touches her pocket and traces the outline of the bottle. No one on the bus pays her any attention. She's reached the age of invisibility. The nurses at the hospital nod and smile when she passes them in the hallway. Marianne pretends not to see the pity in their eyes. She pauses for a moment outside the door to Natalie's room, stealing herself from, for the sound and the smell. Marianne's feet on the tile floor are barely a whisper against the hiss of the respirator. She brushes Natalie's hair back from her face, rubs ointment on her cracked lips, and holds her hand. The skin is paper thin, resembling that of a woman at the tail end of life instead of one in her mid-twenties, and it feels as it's one touch away from splitting open like a too-ripe fruit. Beneath the blankets, her limbs are frail and still. Her hair, once a rich chestnut hanging halfway down her back, is now dull and cropped short. Hi, baby girl. Only the respirator answers. Marianne wishes she could pretend it's her daughter's voice murmuring hello in return. She tells Natalie about her day, about the clients. Finally, she removes the bottle. The guilt returns, and she pauses, as always, before she places the thread on Natalie's palm. She curls Natalie's fingers around the thread and holds them there as she closes her eyes and concentrates. 
the thread will not unravel on its own. A hint of sweetness on her tongue tells her the thread has begun to spin its tail. She takes her hands away, lest she pull any of the magic away from Natalie. Natalie's eyes begin to flutter beneath her lids like butterfly wings. Her fingertips twitch, and the corner of her lips give a hint of a smile. Mary Ann's eyes burn with tears. Come on, sweetheart. Please wake up. Please. She can tell when the thread is spent. The pattern beneath Natalie's lids slows. The ghost of a smile fades. Marianne repeats the process with the rest of the dreads. Surely her clients will understand. Her mother and grandmother, too. In the first few weeks after the accident, one of the doctors recommended reading to Natalie or playing the radio or the television. Sometimes the outside stimulation helped, he said. Marianne immediately thought of the dreads. They contain powerful imagery, like waking dreams, yet even more intense. And when she placed the first dread in Natalie's hand, Natalie smiled. Even after the doctor started using the term permanent vegetative state instead of persistent, Natalie responded to the dreads. Marianne refuses to give up. She knows Natalie is still there, locked deep inside. She needs a little help, that's all. And besides, a year isn't that long. Marianne read about a woman who woke after five years and a man who did the same after eight. With enough hope and a bit of magic, Marianne is certain Natalie will wake. It's only a matter of time. Strength, perseverance, composure. Marianne turns over the card, the world, and the woman blinks rapidly and raises her gaze. Is that good? It symbolizes accomplishment and success. The woman smiles. At the end of the day, Marianne has six threads in her bottle. She was 13 when the first thread poked its way free from her palm. Her mother and grandmother sat her down and explained the way of things, the gift, familial expectation, her duty. They didn't need to, of course. She saw her mother with clients many times, holding their hands and offering words of encouragement before allowing the client to pluck the dread free. Yet it always filled Marianne with unease. The dreads were theirs to give, not for someone to take. The sun, optimism, energy. She places the last thread, one of only four today, in Natalie's hand, and Natalie's fingers curl in on their own. Yes, baby girl, that's it. But after a moment, Natalie's fingers uncurl once more. Marianne's throat feels three sizes too small, and she shakes her head. It's okay, she tells herself. If it happened once, it will happen again. Marianne traces the smooth skin of Natalie's palm, a palm that's never birthed a dread. Marianne's great-grandmother didn't have the ability either, although she passed it down to all four of her daughters. 
According to her mother, the gift once skipped three generations and they thought it gone for good. Perhaps the lack of her own gift is why Natalie reacts so strongly to Marianne's. I know you're in there, she says. Please come back soon, okay? Wheel of Fortune, Possibilities, Fate. As she's pulling a thread from her palm, Marianne's phone rings, a sharp, shrill sound that sends the thread skittering out of her hand onto the floor. Her heart races when she sees the number. She hasn't spoken to her son-in-law in four months, not since he admitted to her that he fell asleep at the wheel. He walked away from the accident with a broken arm, a sprained ankle, and a scratch on his face. Maybe Marianne could have forgiven him if his injuries had been worse. The Moon, Doubt, Anxiety Natalie's fingers twitch, but don't tighten on their own. No, you have to hold it, Marianne says. Another twitch and nothing more. It's okay. I know it's hard. I understand. Natalie's foot moves beneath the sheet. Marianne covers her mouth to hold in a gasp. She watches and waits, her heart heavy with hope. But it doesn't happen again. The Magician. Action. Practicality. Marianne walks into Natalie's room and her son-in-law is standing next to the bed. She freezes in place, her mouth open in surprise. He visits on the weekends, never during the week. Hello, Marianne, Josh says, his voice restrained, cautious. Is everything okay, she says, forcing her feet to move. I tried to call you a few times, but you never answered. I wanted to talk to you about Natalie. Marianne ignores him. Hi, sweetheart, she says, pressing a kiss to her brow. Do you think she'd want this? What do you mean? He rakes his finger through his hair. All of this, this room, these machines. Until she wakes up, this is what we have. And what if she never does, he says but his gaze is directed at the floor, not at her. She will. You'll see. He opens his mouth, snaps it shut. I know my daughter, Marianne says, her voice unwavering. She's strong. She's going to wake up. She will. Marianne, I... He shakes his head. Never mind. I'll go so you can have your time with her. I'll talk to you soon. The door closes with a quiet click, and Marianne rests her head on the edge of the bed. Natalie is strong. She just needs help finding her way back. And Marianne knows Josh isn't serious. He said the same things a few months after the accident. It's hard for them, for him, for both of them, to see Natalie this way. But things will be better when she wakes. Come on, sweetheart, she says. Which each thread, Natalie's eyes move and her fingers twitch. The Tower, Change, Impact.
Marianne puts the last thread in the bottle with a smile on her face. Today was a good day. Seven threads, two of which pushed out of her palm twined together. An auspicious sign. She grabs her phone and her smile crumples. There's a message waiting from Josh. Marianne, I know this is hard for you, but I've been talking to the doctor a lot. And I don't think it's right to keep her alive like that. She'd hate it. You know she would. Please call me back. I've made arrangements to take her off the respirator, to let her go. And I want to make sure you have time to say goodbye. Marianne puts her face in her hands. No, 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 he can't do this. He can't. He thinks he knows what Natalie would want, but he doesn't. He doesn't know her like Marianne does. He wasn't there when she removed the training wheels from her bike, when she stopped the billy from pushing a smaller child down, earning bruises of her own in the process, when she rescued a dying kitten and nursed it back to health. She's a fighter. She's strong. Marianne dials his number, her hands shaking, and doesn't wait for him to speak. Please, Josh, don't do this to her. Don't kill my daughter. Natalie wouldn't want to live this way. I know she wouldn't. I'm sorry, Marianne, but I've been thinking about this for a while, and my decision's been made. It's time. Next Sunday. It's your fault she's there. The words come out barbed at the edges, and there's a long pause. Don't you think I know that, he says. She pretends not to hear the emotion in his voice. Her hands clench into fists. A knot forms on her chest. You don't have the right to do this, Josh. I'm her mother, and I know she's still in there. And I'm her husband. I love her more than I ever thought I could love someone. And I can't bear to see her like this anymore, wasting away to nothing. I love her enough to let her go. It's the right thing to do. No, it isn't the right thing. I know she's going to wake up. I feel it in my heart. Please, just give me a little more time. Another month, just a month. Please, please, I'm begging you. Another long silence. She squeezes her eyes shut, trying vainly to hold back the tears. He gives a long, shuddering sigh. And after that, you'll ask for another month, and then another, and I'll keep finding excuses to say yes. I'm sorry. You, we, have to let her go. Marianne doesn't say goodbye, doesn't say anything else. The phone tumbles from her hand to clatter onto the floor. The chariot struggle, conviction. Marianne pats Natalie's hand. Don't worry. Everything's going to be fine. I know you want to wake up, and I know you just need a little more help. Marianne talked to the doctor, but even though his eyes were sad, he didn't tell her anything new. She called an attorney. He told her that, as, that Josh, as Natalie's husband, had the right to make the decision. But it isn't right. It isn't right at all. How can they just want to let Natalie go? Why is she the only one who believes that she'll wake? Natalie, you have to hurry, okay? 
Marianne pulls out the first thread, then pauses. Maybe there's another way. She drops the thread back into the bottle and worries a cuticle between her teeth. The High Priestess Intuition Sound Judgment Marianne puts on her wig, the coal, the jewelry. Funny how it doesn't take much to change a person into someone else. While she waits for her first client, she shuffles the cards. The first she turns over is the hanged man. She shuffles the cards again. Again, the hanged man. I won't, she says, her voice iron hard and fragile as spun glass. I can't. The Empress, mothering, comfort. On Friday evening, Marianne takes out the bottle. This time, it's half full with twisting threads. She listens to the hiss of the respirator, inhales the antiseptic stink of the room, the despair. This has to work. It's the only thing she hasn't tried, the only thing she can think of. She pats the back of Natalie's hand. I need you to wake up, sweetheart. Please, I know you're in there. She puts all the dreads in Natalie's hand at once. Marianne sees a flash of color and shape in her mind's eye when the dreads begin to tail their tails, and she pulls her hands away. Natalie's fingers curl in. Marianne holds her breath. Natalie's eyes trace chaotic patterns beneath her lids. Her fingers twitch and twitch again. Her toes, too. Her eyelids snap open. Her gaze fixes on Marianne's, fixes and holds. The hand without the dreads reaches out and grabs Marianne's, almost tight enough to hurt. Tears turn Marianne's vision to a blur. I knew you'd come back, she says, her voice thick. I always knew. I love you so much, so very much. Then... Natalie's hand goes limp, and her lids flutter down. No, oh no, come back, honey, wake up. She shakes Natalie's hand, her shoulder. Please, 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 you have to stay awake. But Natalie remains still, her eyes closed. Marianne sinks to the floor, the ache in her chest too much for one woman to hold. I don't know what else to do, she says between sobs. Finally, she stands and wipes, wipes her cheeks dry. She'll tell Josh everything. He won't allow the doctors to disconnect the respirator once she tells him what happened. She'll even break the family's code of secrecy and tell him how. She'll show him so he could see it for himself. Then he'll truly understand, and he'll have to give her a little more time. A few more weeks. That's all she needs. Maybe a month or two. Surely not longer than that. Then all the air rushes from her lungs. Emerging from her daughter's palm is a single red thread. No, it's not possible. It's not. Marianne clutches both hands between her breasts. 
Natalie's chest rises and falls, rises and falls. With her mouth pressed into a thin line, Marianne tugs the thread free. She cups her hand around it, closes her eyes, and waits for the answer to her question. The hanged man letting go. The last thing you need to know is this. The locked door has nothing to do with you. You can look inside. There's a gap in the curtain and see a hint of shadow. You might stand there for a moment, bills in hand, swallowing your hope while you wonder what happened between last week and this. You might feel a moment of frustration or even embarrassment. You've been foolish for coming, for spending your money. Maybe you'll dare one last look and see movement beyond the beaded curtain. You'll lift your hand to knock, then let it fall. In the end, maybe it's better not to know. And welcome back. The threads were theirs to give, not for someone else to take. I really appreciate the imagery in this one, and how cyclical it is, how it all comes back around. We start off with Marianne, or Marina, telling her Mark that she has a choice to make. And all along, as she's plucking out the blood-red story threads given to her by other people's lives, and hoarding them so she can try and rejuvenate her daughter. In the end, her daughter does revive, long enough to give back to Marianne her own thread as well. And all Marianne can do is take, one last time, and make a choice. Take what is given. Make a choice. Sometimes, that's all any of us can do. We shake up the old Podcastle Magic 8-Ball again. Well, it says... Feedback. This week we're talking about On Awamoyela's In Metal and Bone, read by Marbell. The story dealt with identifying the casualties of war by supernatural means, and it was so close to reality that several listeners had a hard time with it. Moritz said, I had difficulties liking this story not because of the writing or the reading, both of which were really good. The topic was just way too close to real life tragedy that it didn't make this enjoyable. Of course, not every story needs to be fun, but the day I was listening, I wanted something fun, and this was just too similar to depressing news. Fenric said, Great haunting stuff. The moment where the officer lets his fear just start to crack through the stiff upper lip routine by mentioning that he has found himself looking at his dog tags without knowing why? Truly chilling. That last exchange is some incredibly compelling writing, and encapsulates the morality and fear of the peacekeeping soldiers in a war zone, while also hinting at the possibility of a future horrific tragedy. How many times will he check his dog tags? Once for each bone? Well, thanks to both of you for those comments. Hey people, you should come over and get in on the conversation at forum.escapeartist.net. Come on over and say hi. Discuss the stories we feature here, the books we're reading, Pretty much everything else. See you there.
And if you like what we're doing, please consider visiting podcastle.org and making a donation. We need your money to keep this castle sailing high into the sky, folks. You can make a one-time donation, or you can sign up for very affordable monthly payments, starting at just $2. $2. You can get like six tacos for $2 at Taco Bell, right? Wait, am I doing this wrong? You can get like a quarter of a burrito bowl at Chipotle for $2? Was that any better? What do you mean? What's Chipotle, Alistair? God! Look, okay, really. Every little bit helps. Even a measly $2 a month. You can always give us more if you want. It's all greatly appreciated. Thank you. Well, that was our show for this week. We do hope you enjoyed it. On behalf of everyone here at Podcastle, LaShawn Wanick, Graham Dunlop, M.K. Hobson, Peter Wood, Anna Schwind, and myself, thank you so much for letting us share another story with you. We'll be back in one week with a weird western from John Joseph Adams' killer new anthology, Dead Man's Hand. This one played by Jeffrey Ford. Until then, keep shaking that magic eight ball until you get the answer you want. See you in a week. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend, or post to your blog about it, or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. Our closing quote is from Linda Hawley, who said, Though I knew in my mind that others had felt such loss, this loss was mine and I felt that no one would ever understand it, and to try to explain the loneliness and pain I felt would be futile. Thank you very much for listening. We'll see you soon.